<laughs> Please stand for me with uh, stand with me for the reading of the word, which today comes to us from the book of First Peter and the first chapter and the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. Thank you for a new book to start. And God, I thank you and praise you. It is literally one of the greatest joys of my life to go through books of the Bible with these people. I pray that by the power of your spirit, God, you would give us wisdom and understanding and you would help us to be doers of this word and not hearers only. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's just two verses, but my goodness gracious. There is so much here. I am deeply convicted that we will not plumb the depths of these two simple, packed, potent verses. But we'll give it what we can today. Um, So the first verse, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that's pretty innocuous, right? I mean, names and places, author and recipients, well, yeah. I know I've said this before, but I'm so... I hope this isn't, I don't think it's demeaning. I'm just so impressed with the intelligence of God. I don't think we think about that enough. God's really smart. I mean, first of all, to have a Bible that was preserved for us and to think that he directly inspired the men who would write these words, and these words are from, I don't think we've ever used it, I'm going to coin a new word today, from an omni-intelligent God. So how could we possibly, and we do, I do, just read the Bible, close it, and say, okay, I did that, got that done. Oh, my word. We could literally spend weeks on this verse. And the next one we could spend months on. And I'm not saying that to be silly. It's the truth. This is loaded. And like I said, the second one is... (laughs) It's like vacuum sealed, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Um, and, and, And so if anything, I would encourage you in your Bible reading, in your Bible study, just slow down. Just slow down and think about how, to use a common phrase, stinking smart God is. And be impressed by that. And ask him to help you understand because he's smarter than we are. So, first verse. To those, to Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So we had a pretty good hello, how are you last week uh, in getting to know this man, Peter, and looking at his transformation from Simon into Peter through the three years of his being a disciple of the God-man, Jesus. Jesus met a man named Simon and pronounced that this Simon would become, would be called Cephas, or Peter in our language. From Simon, which means heard, to Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. And what a journey it was, right? Three plus years of wins, losses, success, failures, revelations, denials. 
And I don't know what Peter's percentages were, but I'd say old Simon Cephas, Simon Peter guy, probably hit like a not very good utility man in the Major League Baseball stuff. It's probably in the low 200s as far as hits and misses. He struck out a lot. He swung and missed a lot. But he wasn't afraid to swing. That's one thing about it. But there surely was a difference, and we didn't talk much about it, but we did see it in post-Pentecost Peter, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and his very first gospel presentation, which wasn't very long, which led to God saving 3,000 souls in one day. And we saw, again, he, he was, definitely wasn't perfect even after Pentecost. We saw in Paul's description in Galatians 2, where there was confrontation between Paul to Peter directly for Peter's hypocrisy in whether he sat in the smoking or not. No, the Gentile or non-Gentile section of the room when he was eating, he was uh, aloof when his Jewish brothers were around and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And, and Paul says, I, I confronted him to his face because he stood condemned. But Peter in Acts was surely a change from Simon in the Gospels, even the Simon that became Peter later on in the Gospels. Jesus had sculpted the stone into an image of himself, and Peter was clearly the leader of the early church and was even recognized by Paul as the apostle to the Jews with Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles. And Peter had some issues too being sent to the Gentiles. That's a neat story in Acts. I think it's Acts 10. So now here in his first of two letters preserved for us in the Bible, we hear from Peter. That's the first word he introduces himself as Peter. Hallelujah, he is who God said he is, right? This letter was probably written in the mid-60s A.D. We won't really cover much of this timeline outside of just you look at the A.D. 60 to 67 deal here uh, for when Peter writes First and Second Peter. And he writes it from Rome. Okay, and that probably means he was in jail when he wrote it. Okay, um, Michael Card, uh, Linda Buttram shared a, a video with me months ago, might have been over a year ago, um, a, a podcast, uh, no, I'm sorry, a YouTube video of Michael Card talking about, he, he just does, says this as an aside, he's a fantastic Bible teacher, by the way, Michael Card is, and, and a songwriter and singer. But he's got an interesting observation um, from when this book was written, about when this book was written in this, in this teaching. And what he says is, if you look at 1 Peter 4.12... Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, again, we're talking about when Peter wrote this letter. That's what's going on here. Um, Michael Card says that you can date this book from this verse. You're like, well, I don't see it. Let me, let me tell you what he says. He links the term fiery trial to actually being the great fire of Rome in 64 A.D., there was a giant fire that started on July 18th of 64. And there were many, uh, there have been many reports that Nero, who was the emperor of Rome at that time, actually was the architect of the fire, that he started the fire. He did start the fire, Billy Joe said. Um, and, and what he was doing was he wanted to rid the empire's capital there in Rome of some less desirable areas so he could build a palace for himself in their place. And there are other reports that Nero then blamed this new sect called Christians for the fire, bringing about a persecution of these said Christians that would last well into the 300s A.D. to some extent or another. Hence, Peter's use of fiery trial. So Peter's in jail in Rome more than likely. There's this giant fire. He's writing this letter. And what Michael Card says is when he heard about the fire and that Nero was blaming the Christians for it. He's like, oh, we got a fiery trial. Kind of like a signal saying, hey, I know what's going on and you need to know what's going on and make sure you're aware that, and again, this whole book, well, not the whole, most of this book is about trials. So Michael Card says you can date this book by that fire because Peter heard about it and was sharing it with people in 64 A.D. 
So it makes good sense to me. Again, I'm not 100% sure, but it does make good sense. So we're going to assume then <clears throat> from these uh, deductions that First Peter would have been written in 64 AD, which works out well from a chronological point of view as well. And we're going to use that date as a launch point in our study. So in 64 AD, Peter writes this letter. How does it start? Again, we see our first word was Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And simple enough, right? Letter writers in those days would open their letter with who was writing the letter. We do it the other way. We sign our names at the end. Um, but as we see from other biblical epistles, first century writers led with identifying themselves. And how does this writer identify himself? Well, he calls himself Peter, and that's important to note. He doesn't call himself Simon. He was Simon when he met Jesus, but Jesus had declared that this Simon would be Peter. And we see that happen in the Gospels at points, in Acts for sure. And here in his own letter, by his own report, Simon has become Peter. He's the rock. And he knows it. He embraces it. And he, as Rodney said there, proclaims it. He is Peter. The teachings of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit have turned stumbling, denying Simon into powerful, passionate Peter. And that's how he introduces himself. But not just by his name. He also says that he is, quote, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is part of his identity. It's who he is. He is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we've covered this word apostle in other books that we've gone through, and, and most of those have been Pauline. Uh, Paul wrote them. Um, but Paul calls himself an apostle here. Peter calls himself an apostle. Apostolos, 81 occurrences in the New Testament, translated as apostle, messenger, and he that is sent. So the definition is a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders, specifically applied to the 12 apostles of Christ, and in a broader sense, applied to other eminent Christian teachers. Now note some things here. It's a masculine noun. It's used 81 times in the New Testament. Now there's 27 books in your New Testament. And this term, this word is used 81 times between those 27 books. Now that's a lot. The term, the concept, the office of apostle is a very important one in the New Testament. Translated as apostle, messenger, and he that is sent. And that first definition, number one there, is the clearest one for sure. A delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. And again, I would reiterate, as we have many times in the past, the saying was, the word of the apostle is as of the word who sent him. That's very important when we talk about biblical language and who's speaking here. Yes, it is Simon Peter. It is Peter who's writing this, but he's writing it as an apostle, which means that he's being sent to write these things. And his words are literally the very words of God. So it's not up for debate whether we like it or whether Simon had good verbiage or whatever. Again, God's smarter than you are. And he made sure that what Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was literally breathed out by that same Spirit. The word of the apostle is as of the word who sent him. A delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. So this apostleship, Peter, this apostle, is one that is sent as a messenger with orders, not opinions or feelings. Jesus had said to those on the hill back in Galilee in Matthew 18, in the great, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, in the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, how are they supposed to do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And watch this teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus Christ is with Peter the apostle as he pins these words. And the things that Peter, the things that Peter is writing, things is are, the things Peter's writing here um, are the commands and the teachings of his master, Jesus Christ. 
The apostles were sent forth with a message. They had orders to teach what they had been commanded. And Peter here says that he is an apostle, one sent as a messenger, with orders to teach and preach and proclaim what his master had entrusted to him. I love that Peter knows that he is sent. I love that he knows he has a message, and I love that he knows that he is under orders to deliver the message that he's delivering. It's not Peter promoting himself or just handing out some random information or, hey, how you guys doing? He, Peter, is a gift sent by the master to fulfill a mission for the sake of the master and those who receive the message and the commands that the master has given through the messenger. Simon, the son of Jonah, the fisherman, has become Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And don't miss that he says he's an apostle of who? Of Jesus Christ. Again, names are so important in the Bible. Sometimes Jesus is called Jesus. Sometimes he's called Christ. Sometimes he's called Savior. Here he is called Jesus Christ. And that means something. Okay? Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's earthly rabbi, who would have been called Yeshua in his day, Jesus of Nazareth, has been shown and known now to be the Christ, the Son of the living God by Peter's own confession revealed to him by the Father. The Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior of the people of God. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's also not a curse word. Christ is Jesus' title, His position. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have found the Messiah Andrew had said when he invited his brother Simon to come and see. And now, clearly and powerfully, uh, Peter acknowledges to his readers that he, Peter, is an apostle, a sent messenger of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He's not sent by human agency. Neither Jesus nor Peter are sent by human agency. They are sent by God himself. And Peter is saying, I'm an apostle of the God-man himself, the very Christ, the anointed one of God which gives a little bit more weight to his words because the word of the apostle is as of the one who sent him. And if the one who sent him is the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah, we better listen. Okay, so Peter has introduced himself and his commanding officer. Now, who is he writing to? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so let's dig in here a little bit. First, let's look at the places mentioned here. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You can see them on the map there. They, they occupy what we would call in modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor back in the day when Peter was writing. Um, and the thing about this is these are all provinces while Peter's writing here. So they're not individual cities, but provinces which each had multiple towns and cities in them. So much of Paul's writings were to specific people or to churches in specific cities. Only Galatians isn't in those parameters. Galatians is written to the province of Galatia. All of, other, all of Paul's other letters are written to specific cities or to specific people. Okay? Well, Peter here is writing to multiple churches in multiple cities in multiple provinces. So he's really counting on this letter getting circulated widely. And I think it's pretty interesting that when you look at Acts 2 and Peter's first sermon, before that sermon we see this. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, Again, this is right before Peter's first sermon. And at this sound, the sound of the, the rushing wind and the, and the flames of uh, tongues of fire, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans, which means hillbillies, bumpkins, barefoot, they don't know nothing. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So while this mentions other places here in Acts 2, we do see Pontus, Asia and Cappadocia in both lists. So again, get your eyeballs on where that's talking about there. Um, Seems that from the time of Pentecost, I love this, which would have been in the 30s AD until the time of Peter's letter being written 30 plus years later. Listen, I think it seems that Peter had either kept up with or maybe even directly corresponded with some of the earliest believers from his first sermon. And I think that's incredible. Peter hadn't held an evangelistic meeting and just let the seeds fall where they may. It would seem that he had made an investment in the lives of those who had repented at his preaching. And he didn't have the internet to communicate with them. It was hard to communicate and to travel back and forth, but it seems like that's exactly what Peter's done here. From his first sermon until near here, near the end of his life, he's kept in contact with some of those earliest believers, it would seem. And he's still investing in those people 30 plus years later. You know what that's called? It's called discipleship. It's called investing in other people with a lifetime commitment to them. That's caring for the flock, feeding the sheep, tending the lambs, just like Jesus had commanded him to do that we saw last week in John 21. But Peter doesn't just talk about where they're from. He says before where they're from that his recipients are those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now that's loaded, all right? Depending on which version you look at, which we're in the ESV, there could be a comma there between elect and exiles. It could be two adjectives describing the same people. And and it is. So are they elect exiles or are they elect and exiles of the dispersion. We're going to look at it as elect and exiles of the dispersion. We're going to start with exiles of the dispersion. Let me give you an understanding of what that means, okay? Um, The people in these provinces that Peter is writing to uh, are said to be exiles of the dispersion, okay? What does it mean that they're exiles of the dispersion? Well, We've talked many times when we got in the Old Testament about the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria back in 722 B.C., so 750 years prior to this. Well, those Israelites, those ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, were literally scattered all over the known world at the time. And so also was the Jewish race and religion as a result. This is referred to in some writings as the diaspora. D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, diaspora, diaspora. I don't know how to pronounce it right. I got It's in there. It's, I'm one or the other. The people and their traditional religion were scattered. Well, we saw in Acts 2 that Jews from all over the known world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. That's some of those scattered people. And you can see for 700 plus years, these people scattered all over the known world were still practicing Jews. Okay. Well, in Acts 7, Stephen is martyred. And in Acts 8.1, we read this. Let me get there. And Saul, who would be referred to as Paul later, which was his Greek name. Jesus didn't turn Saul into Paul, by the way. Saul was Paul and Paul was Saul. Okay, but not important. But as Stephen is murdered, Saul approved of his execution. Listen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We talked about this in our members' meeting a couple weeks ago. We just mentioned it in brief. And then in Acts eleven nineteen, it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So what we see here are two instances of scattering after the church was born. So we had the scattering back in 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom of uh, Israel was destroyed. And now we see even more scattering, even of these early Christians. Okay, 
So there had been many scatterings of the Jews and also scatterings of these followers of this new sect of Christ followers, all the way to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia and beyond as well. So that's exiles of the dispersion. You guys aren't here in Jerusalem or actually here in Rome where I'm at now because Peter's kind of been scattered himself. You're all over the place. And I'm writing this letter to all these people and all these churches and all these towns and all these provinces. So, exiles of the dispersion. But there was one other little word that was before exiles of the dispersion. And what's that word? Elect. There's that word. Doggone if only John Calvin hadn't invented that teaching, right? Hardy, har, har. Tongue in cheek, right? Listen, if you struggle with that word and it rankles you and it bothers you, keep being troubled. Keep being rankled. Keep wrestling, okay? I want that word to be such a comfort to you that when you see it, you literally sigh a sigh of relief. I would beg those of us that struggle with this word, this doctrine, this truth, to just read, study, and believe the Bible. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. And here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uses this precious word. It's not just a Paul word. It's not just a Romans 9 word. I think the most election-centered book in the Bible is the Gospel of John, by the way. But John 3.16, yep, yep. So Peter uses it, John uses it, Paul uses it, the Holy Spirit inspires it. These believers that Peter is writing to are scattered all over Asia Minor and are said to be elect. Eclectos. 23 occurrences, translated as elect 16 times and chosen Seven times. Picked out, chosen, chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. Christians are called chosen or elect of God. And then it talks about other messiahs called elect, the best of kind of class. But what we want to focus on there is the fact that the elect means that these people are chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, I get it. But if it comforts you, I get that too. Chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. And I've, I'll openly proclaim, admit, say, oh, there's a lot of questions regarding this that I don't have answers to. Absolutely. I don't... I've got a pretty systematic theology about how this fits into everything, but there's a lot of things that I go, well, I don't know. Why, how, when, eternity past, because God did it. Well, you're going to have to be more specific. I'm sorry, I can't. But God is God, and I'm not. If I had all the answers, I'd be God, and I don't. But he does. And in his perfect plan, and his plan is perfect, God chooses those who would obtain salvation through Christ. He is sovereign. And that means over everything, including salvation. And in his sovereign oversight over salvation, God chose these recipients of Peter's letter to be saved, to obtain salvation through Christ. And Peter reminds them of this with this one word, eclectos. And there are major implications in this, which we'll explore later in verse 2 and in application. But for now, those reading Peter's letter, scattered all over these provinces, listen, have been chosen by God himself to receive eternal salvation. And that's where Peter starts this whole thing. And that's where we need to start this whole thing. And then he continues to explore it in verse 2, which again is just so much. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. (laughs) So let me read verses 1 and 2 together, because they go together with a comma. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, we've gone from the monstrously huge truth of election to the universe big doctrine of the Trinity. So the elect exiles of the dispersion are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience of Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Wow! How in the world can we even begin to untangle this amazing mess of glory? Well, we do it by doing it. We just jump in, right? And again, we won't get it all untangled, but hopefully we get a good... We focus the binoculars at least a little bit. The elect exiles are what they are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So let's start there. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now according to, that's a very important little transitory clause there. According to. Um... A rich man can give you some money out of his riches. So a rich man who is a billionaire could give you $1,000. And $1,000 is a lot of money, but not to that rich man. Now, if that rich man gave you according to his riches, it's going to be a lot more. Are you tracking with me? Okay, not out of, but according to. And these elect exiles are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It could be said that according to, listen, means to do something in a manner conforming to something else. Stay with me. According to means something corresponds to something else in proportion to that something else. Okay. The election of these exiles was in a manner conforming to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. All right? So, I think if God gave out of his foreknowledge, that could be misunderstood to mean that God knows ahead of time what people are going to do. Right? So like, oh, God looks into the future. Oh, good, Jason picked me. That's fantastic. I was sweating that one because he was a scoundrel. He is a scoundrel. That would be out of God's foreknowledge. He, He has foreknowledge. You see what I'm saying here? But if God, the Father, is sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, Omni-intelligent, write that down again. If he knows and is the source of all things, if something is done according to his foreknowledge, in proportion to his foreknowledge, what kind of foreknowledge would that be? The foreknowledge of God the Father. He doesn't just know before people do something. I mean, that's true. He does know before they do it. Because he's eternal and he exists outside of time. He invented time. But he's not constrained by time. The Greek word for foreknowledge here is one that we're familiar with. It's prognosis. Its root word is prognosko. And it means to select in advance or choose beforehand. These elect exiles were elected by God's foreknowledge. 
which means His setting, His relational love upon them beforehand. These elect exiles were elected by God's foreknowledge. He did the setting. They were the recipients. He didn't see what they would do. He chose them to receive what He was freely giving. That's the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that word father means a lot of things, including male ancestor, but it also means generator. And I love that word generator. God is the generator of salvation. He's the generator of everything, actually. But as far as salvation goes, listen, God generates it. And we get what? Regenerated. It starts with Him, and He chooses who will receive it. I'm not going to bang on that drum anymore. Well, I will later. But it's super important that we understand that this election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the word for knowledge there is not just knowing something. It's intimately loving someone in a relationship. It's Adam knew Eve his wife kind of knowledge. Intimate knowledge. And God fore intimately knew us before the foundation of the world. Mm-mm-mm. There's that relief sigh (laughs) it starts with him and he chooses who will receive it so let's move on from here the next clause is in the sanctification of the spirit now what does that mean these elect exiles are according to the foreknowledge of God the father in the sanctification of the spirit so now watch this in eternity past before there was anything except God God the father elected those who would be saved Now, when that salvation was granted to those believers, in time, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, began the work of sanctifying these believers who had been foreknown according to the election of God or elected according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, that word sanctification is hagiosmos, mas, mos, mas. Um, Ten occurrences... Uh, translates as holiness five times and sanctification five times. Consecration, purification, the effect of consecration, a sanctification of heart and life. You see, salvation was determined in eternity past by the Father, but in time, that salvation takes viable, physical, progressive shape. And as that salvation takes that viable, physical, progressive shape, it changes the recipient of the salvation. They become consecrated. They become more and more pure in their thoughts, in their feelings, in their actions. They are becoming more like their Savior. And who does that work? Praise God, it's the Holy Spirit of God that's doing that work. Oh, man. Monergism, synergism. Monergism means one source. So when we say that salvation is monergistic, we means that God is the sole cause of salvation. Synergism would be me and Jesus got our own thing going and we worked it out and, and we figured this out. It took synergy between me and him for us to be saved. I'm not a synergist. I'm a monergist. But I tell you what, I think we kind of whoop, whoop, tiptoe into synergism when we start talking about sanctification. Whose job is it? To sanctify me. Is it mine? Be careful. That's a hard question. Here, thank God, Peter says our sanctification is what? In the sanctification of the Spirit. We're going to finish today with a benediction that says... Faithful is he who calls you. He will surely do it. He'll do what? He's going to keep you. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to carry you over the finish line if he has to. Do I need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Yes. But where's the power for that cooperation come from? It comes from the Spirit. It's not something I drum up in my gut. And that's really good news. 
If I am becoming more consecrated, more and more pure in my thoughts, feelings, and actions, who's doing that work? The Holy Spirit of God. God Himself is doing that work in and through me. And that's really good news. We are going to become more and more like our Savior, and it is the Holy Spirit of God who is doing that work, making it happen in the life of the believer. Are you, so I'm, I, you've got to be thinking, are you saying I don't have to do anything? I don't know. I'm responsible for my actions. I do have free will as a born-again Christian. I can choose to honor God or to please myself. But I got no power in and of myself outside of the Holy Spirit of God. So if I'm going to be sanctified, I've got to be petitioning the Spirit of God to do the work that only He can do. A lot to think about there. Okay? A lot to think about. But God chose, and the Father chose, and the Spirit enacts. E-N-A-C-T-S. He enacts this salvation that God elected before the foundation of the world. The Spirit enacts it in individuals and in congregations. And there's one last clause here. For the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And man, this is glorious. God chooses, the Spirit works to bring about change, and those changes are for obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, the one who sent the apostle to teach his commands. Jesus the Christ, the Lord, the King of kings. God's choosing and the Spirit's working are to bring the believer to obedience to Jesus and Jesus' commands. And for sprinkling with his blood. Now that's a weird phrase. What's that mean? Many commentators, including John MacArthur, uh, point back to Exodus 24 for an explanation of this sprinkling with blood. Exodus 24, 3 to 8. So Moses had received, if you remember, Exodus 20 gives us the Ten Commandments and and, um, Moses is receiving those directly from God himself up on the mountain. So Moses came in Exodus 24 and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now watch this. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now if you're going to sacrifice oxen, that means they're going to die. Right? And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins And half of the blood he threw against the altar. So the altar was kind of indicative of God's part of this. We're offering this to God. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. (laughs) And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We're going to do what God said. And Moses says, behold, that blood that I threw against the altar, that blood that I just threw on you, that's the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. So here the people of Israel were sprinkled with blood to indicate, to be a testimony to the fact that they would obey the laws of God. It was a sign of a covenant that God had made with His people and they entered into with Him. And the blood being sprinkled was a visible indicator, a very vivid visible indicator of the agreement to obey the words and teachings and laws given by God. Remember back in Genesis 15 we talked about the the covenant that God made with Abraham and God passed between the pieces. They would pass between the pieces and the blood would throw up on their garment which basically was this. Them saying, if I ever break this covenant, let my blood be spilled. If I break the covenant. And so here, Moses throws the blood on the people and is saying, you're accountable for this, we're going to be obedient stuff. You can't just say we're going to be obedient and then go about your merry way and not be obedient. And if you want to know how serious this is, here, wear some blood. And they're like, we get it. This is important. It's a big deal. We're cutting a covenant. 
as a visible indicator. Well, back in 1 Peter, God chose the Spirit-empowered... Let me go back there so you can see it. God chose the Spirit-empowered, and that empowerment was to obedience to Jesus Christ. And the sign of the covenant here is that believers are sprinkled with His blood, Jesus' blood. What do we do every week? We remember that and we proclaim that, right? This sprinkling is us being covered in the blood of Jesus as an indicator that we are covenant people, primed and empowered to obey our Lord and Master. So the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit leads us to obedience that was agreed upon by the shedding of Christ's blood and our being covered or sprinkled with that blood. It's our sign of the covenant leading us to keep the commands that he has given us, which this is a very powerful, visible reminder of week by week by week by week. Thank God. So the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are active in our salvation from eternity past into eternity future, including in this present day. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three persons of the one God are active in your personal salvation. All three persons of the one triune God are operating to save those who are his covenant people. And this will take a lifetime and an eternity to properly grasp and respond to. But we got to move on today to our last sentence of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Seems like a prevailing theme of the New Testament is that the followers of Jesus are to have, know, experience, rest in, and operate in grace and peace. Back when we were going through the pastoral epistles, we gave a definition of grace that we're going to re-give today. It was the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, and it means the merciful kindness by which God, this is grace, the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Yeah, give me that. Sign me up. And peace is the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, and content with its earthly lot, of whatsoever sort that is. That's peace. So yeah, give me that too. Well, Peter doesn't just pray that his readers would have these two blessed things, but he asks that grace and peace would be multiplied to them. And they say, thanks, Peter. That's fantastic. So that's a pretty good way to start a letter, y'all. Dear John. <laughs> And it's pretty impressive for a fisherman from Capernaum who had been run through the gauntlet by the Lord of the universe and is now serving that Lord and his people in so many ways, including the writing of this letter that we are starting to study with these two amazing verses today. Wow. So let's look at application. We'll be looking at three S's. Signature, strangers, and saved. Signature, strangers, and saved. First is signature. Peter's signature at the beginning of this letter identifies himself in the same way that God identifies him. That includes his name and his role in God's kingdom. Application? Be who God says you are. Hallelujah. We are who you say we are. Listen, I don't say this to pick a fight. I don't say this angrily or hatefully. Our society is infatuated with identification. 
And so much of that identification is in direct rebellion to what God says. God gives chromosomes and I choose to not identify as that. God gives skin pigmentation and I choose not to identify as that. And this is rampant in our culture. And let me say it, it is direct rebellion against God himself. I'm not mad. I'm not hateful. I am pleading with us to understand that we are who God says that we are. We are who God creates and recreates us to be. And our goal, our whole purpose in life, is to work toward conforming to who He has said that we are. So if you're outside of Christ today, if you're not a believer, God says you are a sinner. And you can shake your fist and say, I'm not a sinner. But you're fighting a losing battle. Or maybe you're a believer and the enemy's whispering, you're just a sinner. You're just a sinner. You're just a sinner. I dare you, church, those of you in Christ, look back over this past week. Pick out a sin or two to think about. Out of the many that you committed. Does that condemn you? There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but I sinned. You sure did. And God says that sin was atoned for, paid for, through the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. You finished it all on the cross and rose from the grave and brought us with you. I hope you don't ever get tired of hearing me say this, but God's proclamation over his children today is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hallelujah, we are who he says we are. Am I a sinner? Absolutely. And I'm a saint. Samuel Hustus et peccator. At the same time, a saint and a sinner. Know the full truth and ramifications of what God has done to create and recreate you. Are you a sinner? Identify yourself as such and see what God has to say about that. Are you born again? Identify yourself as such and see what God has to say about that. You are Simon. You will be Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In his letter to the churches in Revelation 2, Jesus says, Jesus says, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God has every right and every ability to even rename you. And when you get to heaven, he's going to give you a little white rock. He's going to say, this is my name for you. You're going to go, wow, thanks. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name. My favorite name of all that God has for me is, You are mine. (coughs) Hallelujah. We are who you say we are. Have the right signature on your life. Peter did. So signature. Now strangers. To the elect, exiles of the dispersion. So much of this letter is going to be Peter explaining what this new identity, this new signature that we have in Christ looks like. And what he's going to say over and over and over again is we're not to be at home in this world. 
in this world system. This world is passing away along with its desires. And if you can walk around in the culture, in society, and not feel a little bit out of place, something's wrong as a believer. Rodney mentioned uh, Paul strolling into Athens and he's troubled in his spirit because there's a God on every corner. They've even got an inscription to the unknown God, just in case we missed one. If you can scroll the internet, step into Starbucks, go to Walmart, and not feel a little bit out of place, our eyes aren't properly on heaven. Am I saying you're not born again? I'm not saying that. But if you're at home in this world and this is all you want, we need to reorient. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. These all in this hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, listen, yes, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Go to a city. Look that up on the internet. We're literally ambassadors in a foreign country just passing through till we get home. This ain't home. Not as it is. It's going to be decimated and reassembled and be perfect. And listen, if you don't long to go to a place where there's no more weeping, mourning, dying, death, disease, suffering, if you don't want that and you're home here, I'm sorry. There's something better coming. Therefore, come out of her, my people. Be separate and distinct. Live as strangers and aliens, not as those who are cozy, cuddly with the world and its system because the world is passing away and is under the power of the prince of the power of the air and is going to be judged. We ain't home yet. Let's live like strangers looking for a better homeland. Signature strangers and finally saved. Oh, man. (laughs) We could spend a long time on this application point, but I got three minutes, so. Can we see from this passage today what it means to be saved? Peter said these recipients were selected, sanctified, and sprinkled. Three more S's for you. Selected, sanctified, and sprinkled. God, the one Trinitarian God in all three of his persons were active, are active, and will forever be active in your salvation. The foreknowledge of God the Father selected you. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, selected, sanctified, and sprinkled by God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I have chosen you. Satan made a petition to sift Peter back in the Gospels. Jesus said, Simon, Satan has asked, asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. It's all God's doing by all of God. Father, Son, and Spirit in and through you. Titus 3, 3-7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, folks, when Jesus gets in the boat, you're already home. And the Holy Spirit's going to guarantee that you make it. According to the elect foreknowledge, of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, you have signed our very lives with your signature. We are who you say we are. And we praise you for that signature that you've written over us, God. And we praise you, God, That we are strangers in this world. That we're not at home here. And God, we praise you for saving us from the destruction that's coming, from the judgment that's coming, from your wrath. And God, if there be anybody within the sound of my voice that has not fled from the wrath to come, may they see that that salvation was purchased by God the Son when he hung on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And may your Holy Spirit, God, quicken these people, bring them to new life, regenerate them, generator. Give them life so that they might respond to you, repent of their sins, and receive the gift of the grace of God purchased for them by the finished work of Christ. And may they live the rest of their days in obedience to that Christ in the power of your Holy Spirit. And may it be true of all of us, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't stand up yet. I'm going to stop this recording. And Miss Grace, are you capable of signing a piece of paper today? I hope so too. A piece of paper.